Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, good morning, church. Hope you got your hugs and high fives and distant hellos in. Well, I am Jenna Wimmer. I am um, a nurse practitioner by trade and uh, one of the elders here at the church. I am, if you're new here, I am not the pastor of this church. Um, you can imagine like someone, some, a man, um, a little younger than me, black curly hair, uh, always straight black jeans, uh, rolled up a little bit right to show off his cool tattoos on his ankles. Um, sometimes like a striped shirt makes him look like where's Waldo. Um, says some really weird words sometimes because he like grew up in Ireland and parents are Irish. Um, then, you, then you'd know our pastor, Ryan. Um, but I am not him. Um, and like... Uh, Jeff said, who also, there's a microphone sitting right there, um, just wanted to point that out. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like Jeff said, he's on sabbatical for another month, so I get the joy of teaching today. Um, and we are continuing on in our, um, this whole year we've been talking about faith as, a, as allegiance to Jesus above all else, right? Um, and now we're looking at the narratives of some of the people that were closest to Jesus, um, some of his first disciples. And today we get to look at the life of Judas. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think. Um, in my head, like the whole time I'm doing it, I'm like thinking of like that magazine cover that's like, um, uh, who really is Judas, right? Is he a thief? Um, is he confused? Is he possessed by the devil? Is he political revolutionary? And I, if I was cool enough, I would have created a slide that said that, but uh, it's, it's really weird up here, guys. Um, but it's been a wild ride thinking about Judas and what's going on. And I think what I've seen the most in studying him is that he, is unwilling to believe the truth about who Jesus was, and so he cannot see the truth about who he himself is, and that leads him to disappointment and anger and shame. And we, like Judas, this is going to be our kind of thesis, often feel shame when we value what we want from Jesus more than Jesus himself. Yeah, so let's pray, um, and we'll get started into here. Jesus, it really is about you. We want it to be all about you. Break open our hearts. Let us hear what you want us to say. And we bring to you all of us, everything that has been wrapped up in this week, we bring it to you as an offering, Lord, that you would speak into it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, so four major passages we want to look at today. One's not really looking at the passage, but the first one we're going to look at is when, um, just like Jesus calls his disciples. So I think it's important that we know that Jesus actually did call Judas to be one of the 12 disciples. Um, his name is oddly listed out as like Judas Iscariot every time, or like the son of Simon Iscariot. Um, so I think it's important to let's look at his name and see what it means, because it might give us some insight into the motives of what drives him. Um, and there's about two different um, ideas as to what his name means. The first one, pretty 
normal, Judas, um, the Greek form of the word Judah, which is a pretty common Hebrew name. Um, Iscariot might have meant um, the Hellenized form of the Hebrew word karyot. Um, so ish karyot, man of karyot, referencing maybe to where he came from, which would make him a little bit of an outsider with the disciples because a lot of them were really local. So karyot's away from where we see most of the disciples coming from. The other explanation is that Judas Iscariot is the Greek form of the word Judas, Judah Sicariot. The Sicarii were first century group of people that kind of branched off these Jewish zealots. And what they did is they wore these cloaks and they had these little daggers called sike, and they would um, go and they would stab, terrorize Romans or Roman sympathizers um, because they wanted to see uh, Roman leave the occupation of Judah. Um, so they have these little daggers and they hide them under their cloak and then they would go into like big crowds and they'd stab people and then they'd go away unrecognized. Um, for, oh, side note, I did look up the how to say these words on the internet. I was like, how do you say the pronunciation so I don't look like an idiot of like Sicarii, Sicarii. And like I looked at four different ones and they all gave me different ways to say it. Um, Sicarii, Sicarii, Sicarii. I'm like, forget it. I'll just look like an idiot. Um, but all of that stuff is true. So if this seems weird to you that Jesus would call someone from this kind of sect, think about the rest of the disciples, right? They all came from very various backgrounds. Uh, we have James and John, the sons of thunder. That's how they were turned by Jesus. And they were always quick to really call down fire from heaven and probably not very averse to violence. Of course, we have Simon Peter that we know cuts off the ear of the uh, soldier, right? When Jesus is getting betrayed. Um, and I'm sure that's not his first violent act. Uh, we have Simon the Zealot, a member of a religious political movement that sought to overthrow the Roman government. And then we have Paul, which we learned about last week, who, of course, was a just doing a lot of bad things to people who didn't believe the type of Judaism that he believed in. And so I think Judas kind of just fits right in. So the second passage we're going to look at is the time in John 6 where Jesus is in the kind of the middle of ministry. He is proclaiming pretty boldly um, these statements like, I am the bread of life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And people are starting to really grumble. And they're like, what is this dude all about? Um, and that you start to see a lot of people leaving following Jesus. This is not really what they wanted or expected, right, of a Messiah. Um, even his disciples are starting to be like, this is really hard to grasp. So we, we pick up in John 6. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit. Yet there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Simon, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he was referring to Judas who would betray him. 
that's pretty rough for Judas. Um, you know, we don't really know exactly what he had done up until this time, but we have no reason to believe that he wasn't participating in active ministry with the rest of the disciples. Um, he was given the same authority and power to go out. Jesus sent him out just like the rest of the 11 to heal people, cast out demons, bring apart his ministry. Um, and yet God, Jesus, has some pretty rough words to describe him here. So we're going to go to the third passage, and this is the time a little bit before Passover. They're hanging out at, um, oh man, who was the guy that died and then brought back to life? Lazarus, thank you. They're at Lazarus' house, and uh, Mary and Martha are there. Martha working, of course, and Mary hanging out, of course. And she takes a bottle of perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and um, then she wipes his feet with her hair. Another part of uh, one of the other gospels says she pours it on his head, and it says, the fragrance filled the house. And I can imagine that everyone's like sitting back and being like, hmm, enjoying it. And then Judas pops up. And he says, John 12, 4, 5 through 8, why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it, what was in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you. You will always have me. Jesus' rebuke to Judas was including a reminder that he was going to die. Again, definitely not something that everyone anticipated for their traditional messianic leader. And this probably stirred up a lot of disappointment, angst in him. But the important thing here is that Judas did not see the value of Jesus's presence more as the most important thing. Judas's rebu Jesus's rebuke to him is not saying, like, don't care about the poor, obviously. He's saying, I know the deeper parts of your heart. I can see the reality of your money-loving, kind of selfish nature that's pretending to care about the poor. And he's saying, I am worthy of the costly sacrifice made by this woman. And even people there, probably sitting around, were like, this really should have been sold and given to the poor. So it's kind of like a waste. Even if they didn't have those selfish desires, Jesus is still saying, I am worth the costly sacrifice that she has made. Mary knew the value of being in Jesus's presence. So the last one we're going to look at, a little longer passage, is the night of the Last Supper. John 13, 1. Bear with me. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew the Father was, had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And because of that, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a bin, then he starts to wash the disciples' feet. Okay, we know this story. He washes the feet, Peter rejects him, then he says, I have to, and then Peter's like, wash my whole body, and then he's like, okay, Peter, chill out, and he washes everyone's feet. And then he like describes kind of why he does it. So we'll pick back up in verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, 
Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, and he said, Simon Peter mentioned to this disciple, said, ask him which one he means. So leaning back against Jesus, he says, Lord, who, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping it in the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Again, the name, for the full name. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what are you about to do? Do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had, was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy what he needed for the festival and to give it to the poor. As soon as Judas, Judas had left, I'm sorry, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So some scholars are, are assuming that this was kind of like side combos, like not everyone heard like everything that was going on. And, and I think that's interesting to this passage. Um, I'm not referring to all of you. I know who I've chosen. That's what he says in verse 18. Jesus knew who he had chosen. He's assuring them that he knows the hearts of people at this table. He's proclaiming again that their worst fear that he would die is going to happen, but to have hope. What I find most stunning about this passage is Jesus' response to Judas. I don't know about you, but if someone even like, even says something negative about a book that I love, I feel personally offended. Like, I love Harry Potter um, and, or Ender's Game. And if anyone's like, oh, I don't really like Harry Potter or I'm not reading it because it's like evil in it. Well, first of all, have you read the story of Judas? Second of all, it's so good. But seriously, I get personally offended if someone's like, I don't like Harry Potter. Um, that criticism or dislike for this book feels like now something that, I that, that you dislike about me. And I know this seems silly, but I've had a lot of friends walk away from the faith this year. And I, I think that I have a slew of emotions when they do that, but I also find that one of the emotions I feel is the same emotion I feel when someone's, you know, dissing on Harry Potter. I feel a sense of rejection about me. Somewhere along the way, I valued this thing too light, tightly, and it became part of my identity. Jesus chose to be in relationship with Judas for three years. He chose to have some of his most intimate human relationships with this guy. He knew what Judas will do. And his response isn't rejection. It's not being personally offended. It's not anger. It's not pulling away from relationship with him. It's brokenness. It's being troubled in spirit. Even when he does the actual betrayal, he says, friend, why have you come? That's what he says to Judas. Jesus isn't pretentious. He's not like, friend, why have you come? He knows what's going to happen. He isn't a liar. He loves him till the end. Man. Because Jesus' core, this is how he can do that, his core is in his close, like in his identity as being a son of God, a beloved member of the Trinity. Jesus is sad and broken that Judas chooses out, but he never turns it to bitterness or anger. Jesus' identity is never based, thank God, on the measurement of, uh, does this person accept me? It's radical. He's rooted in knowing who he is in relation to the Father, so rooted that he can not only take what's coming, his rejection, death, betrayal, but he can be kind to those who are participating in it. It's nuts. So if you're like me and sometimes you feel a personal sense of rejection when our friends walk away from the faith or whatever it is, it's worth asking ourselves if we aligned our identity with the religion of Christianity over the person of Christ. 
Jesus is broken over Judas. So what happens next? We know Judas leaves. He goes right to the chief priests and the elders, and he haggles a price. He sets a time, sets a sign. Judas leads this large people. Sorry, I got a mouth thing going on, the devil. Um, he kisses, seriously, it's weird. Um, he kisses Jesus on the cheek, you know, and then they take Jesus and they condemn him to death. And what happens to Judas? He is full of remorse. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He wants to give the money back, but they won't take it, so he throws it in the temple. They, they take that money and they use it to buy a plot of land. Judas goes and he hangs himself. In one of the Gospels, it says that his intestines spilled out. So they think like he was hanging himself, then he fell on a rock. And I mean, it's, it's brutal. And that's where we end with Judas. So side note, um, if you're like me, then you're like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, Jesus knew all this from the beginning. Did Judas even have a choice? It seems like kind of he was set up, right? Um, so I think it's worth discussing. This is not a main point of the passage, but it's worth discussing because this, this hung me up for a long time, that prophecy and foreknowledge do not negate human choice. He might have known that this would be the case, and he knew it would be part of his plan for redemption, but Judas still had the choice. So foreknowledge does not demand predetermination. So think of it like this. We see time as this, right? I tried to do this slide, but I don't know. It, it, it's a, well, not then, the next one. Um, time is, we're here, right? And the future is over here. And that's how we see time. Whatever. Yes, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Oh, it is. Okay, yeah, good. Okay, and the future's over here. The, the circle got a little weird. So think of God sees time as like, okay, the circle is time, right? God's in the middle, and he's equal distance to all parts of time. Okay, so it shifts the way that he sees time. And Steve had a great analogy. I thought it was good. He was like, say you're here, right, in the, in the, in the present, and then you go to the future. Thank you, Cole. Um, and you watch a football game in the future, and you know the outcome. So then you go back to the present time, and you live your way to the future. And when it comes time to watch that football game, you know the outcome. Now, you, have, you don't play football. You're not a coach. You didn't, you know, bet against with the referees. You have nothing to do with the outcome of this, but you just know what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Does that kind of help? Yeah, okay. So recapping, Jesus tells us there will be a betrayal. Judas is responsible for his own choice. Even Judas knows he's responsible for his own choice, right? I have sinned. Judas is a willing instrument, but God is ultimately in control. See, we see here that Jesus manipulates Satan's rebellion for the benefit of mankind always. Judas is a thief, maybe. He steals money from the bag. He doesn't understand the value of the presence of God. He's been with Jesus for three years, and he still chooses out. He feels remorse. Maybe he didn't know the damage he was doing, so why does he do it? I think this is where we get kind of our application. We knew he loved money, but 30 denarii is literally nothing, so I don't think that's the, the reason. Maybe without the money, he wouldn't have done so much damage. I don't know. Maybe he knew that they were plotting to kill him, so he kind of wanted to get out while he could. Maybe Judas saw it going a completely different way, and it made him realize that he had a lot of resentment over the years of misunderstanding the nature of Jesus' mission from the start. We know not everyone was impressed with the suffering servant, right? They wanted a, a, a charismatic military leader to overthrow the Roman government and, and free the Jews, establish, establish an independent Jewish state. So I think we can safely infer from this text that his motives were pretty self-focused, mostly fueled by his disappointment of what Jesus came to do. 
Judas's plan had himself freed and the uh, for, had himself victorious and the Jews freed. And God's plan, his father's plan, had God victorious and everyone free. See, his vision was too narrow. So I said I, I'm a nurse practitioner, so this is the analogy that came to me. I, I treat mainly people living with HIV, and so HIV is a virus, bear with me, all non-medical people, gets into your body and it kills your immune system, all the things that fight your infections for you, right? So it can be in your immune system and you won't even know for about eight to 10 years. Um, and so slowly over time, your immune system is draining and draining and draining and draining, and then you get to me and you're like, I'm really sick and I've lost like 30 pounds and I can't, I can't stop coughing. And I say, okay, we're gonna put you on this medicine, it's really good, it's gonna work for you, but you're gonna feel crappy. There's a virus in your body that doesn't want to go anywhere and it's going to fight against the medicine and you're going to feel really crappy. And I need you to talk to me through it. I need you to tell me if you get blank, 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 rash, uh, weird vision, etc. But I promise you, I promise you, after two to three weeks, you'll start to feel better and it will, you'll, you'll have a normal life, a normal lifespan. I promise you just got to get through the next few weeks. I see the bigger picture of what's going to go on their immune system. I'm like, just trust me, we're going to get there together. And I think this is uh, the big picture for God. See, our human life here is just a glimpse of eternity. It's a snapshot. Jesus knows the big outcome. He's working out everything for the good of our souls. So I think there's two main takeaways here um, that are incredibly important for our life. The first is the reality of spiritual warfare. And the second is looking at what we desire in our lives, the blessings Jesus can give us or Jesus himself. So the first one we're going to do is we're going to look at spiritual warfare for a little bit. Um, yeah. I couldn't ignore it. So as I was studying, I was like, oh, there's so much on spiritual warfare. This is going to be an exhaustive list. What should I say? Um, and I'm going to briefly go really fast, like 1.5 on your podcast fast. Uh, it's like 101 speaking, don't do it. So I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it because I think these ideas are important and we need to know them. And it's all over the story of Judas, um, you know, devil entering him, him being prompted by Satan, etc. Um, and a lot of the things that I've learned is from John Elridge in a podcast by Adam Young, which I'll put a link up to the end because it's nine episodes. If you don't listen to podcasts like me, then you're like, okay, podcast, I'm not going to listen to this. But I, this is one that I would say listen to it. We did it as a small group, and it was life-changing. I think about it every day. So I'm going to go through some things that I learned from him and hopefully uh, will help us today. And when you listen to it, you're going to be like, she just straight up stole all that stuff for that. And I'm going to say, yes, yes, I did. I stole all of it because why reinvent the wheel? The stuff is so, so good. Okay, so the first thing we need to understand is that we are living in the midst of a world at war. The war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. If you are a human of faith, then you live in conflict. This is the human condition. Eugene Peterson said to be human is to be at war. Throughout different periods of time, we have these different ideas of evil and good. During the Enlightenment period, it shifted to believe that all evil things have a natural cause. Everything had a scientific reason for it. Every social ill, every so psychological ill, everything had a scientific reason for it. And that idea bled into the way Christianity, just like Christianity always, society always bleeds into Christian thinking, also bled into Christianity. And we started to stop believing or being aware that there was these spiritual forces of evil going on. And we still think that today. I don't think there's like a major general agreement that there is supernatural evil at play all the time in our lives. 
if you watch The Usual Suspects, Kevin Spacey at the end of the movie, I know this is aging me because it was a really long time ago. If not, you, well, spoiler alert, you don't want to watch it now. At the end, he says, the devil's greatest trick that he ever played was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. It's pretty much the whole uh, point of all the characters in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Screw Tape Letters, so you should read that too. But before we can believe that spiritual warfare exists, we have to understand that we've been slowly conditioned to believe that evil isn't real. And that's the way they want it. But it's dangerous and it's naive. In Matthew 10, Jesus calls out, the, he calls and equips the disciples to heal the sick, to raise the, de raise the dead, to drive out demons. He talks about evil more in the New Testament than he does about grace. And I've heard people over the years be like, why does it feel like in the United States we don't have like active evil going on, right? We go overseas and there's like spiritual demon possession, things like that, if you've ever experienced that. And I think evil has gotten really smart and it's shifted with our culture to hide in the shadows. So we know there's a war. We know that God is in the process of putting everything under his feet. We know he's victorious, but 1 Corinthians 15, 20 tells us that he is in the process of putting all evil under his feet, and he's calling us to be a part of it. How? Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, oh, sorry, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. There's four emissaries of the devil. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. These are not synonyms. These are different ways that evil presents itself. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching everyone about what evil spirits can do. Look it up. It's kind of creepy. They can travel at will. They can combine forces. They vary in degrees of wickedness. And the Bible has a ton of different names for them. Thrones, strongholds, princes, spirits, demons. What's the goal of these evil spirits? Jesus, John 10 tells us the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. It wants to kill and steal and destroy any opportunity for you to know the goodness of God. Evil seeks to steal the goodness of your relationships, kill the desires of your heart, and destroy the unique way that you represent the image of God. They do that through two ways, accusation and deception. John 8, Jesus is talking to these people who don't believe in him, and he says, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. Harsh. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Evil is a liar, and its heart is deception. It wants to accuse you of sin, sometimes truthfully and sometimes untruthfully. He's always going to appeal to your sin. And it wants to bring accusations against you so that you labor under the weight of that sin. Accurate or inaccurate. It may accuse you something unlovely about yourself, a weakness or a frailty. And it always coincides with a big part of our story. I'll give you an example in a second. And it's consistent and it's intentional over the course of our life. But remember, friends, there is no condemnation that can come against you, accurate or inaccurate. Any power to condemn you. Jesus nailed that to the cross. So Satan and evil are going to, they are not your judge, they're just your accuser. We must remember that we are freed people. So if we start to think about our story and identify the lies, how long are we hearing these lies? You're a bad mom. You're lazy. You're a fraud. You're overweight. You never work hard enough. You're too emotional. You're too messed up for anyone to love you. You're alone. I don't know what Judas's was, but he was a thief, so maybe you're always going to be a thief. 
You'll never fit in with these other disciples. You're too different for anyone to get you. When I was six years old, I uh, thought it would be a really great idea to tell my uncle, who was a super, super, like, deadhead, traveled with, uh, a cocaine addict, traveled with Grateful Dead for years, that smoking is bad for his health. Um, and so I was like, you know, Uncle Larry, smoking is bad, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, um, and he just, like, was like, Fred, take your daughter out of here. And, it, and my dad comes over, and instead of, like, asking him what happens or sticking up for me or anything like that, he was just like, Jenna, just, you're bothering everyone. Get out of here. And the devil whispered to me as a six-year-old, you're too much. What you have to say doesn't matter. And it stuck with me. That lie stuck with me. I, I literally just battled it a couple months ago again. In college, I remember my best friend, who I thought was my best friend, said, like, you're too much all the time, and no one's going to tell you the truth, so I will. And the, the devil whispered, remember, your, dad, your dad's right. So I start to close myself off to people. I don't speak up. I don't trust that what I have to say has any value. The devil will take these lies and deceive us into making agreements with us. Science has shown that when we get these accusations, our brain actually reorganizes the way that we see ourselves. And if you didn't know that it was a devil saying it to you in the first place, you'll think it just arose in your heart because you've been hearing it all your life. And you'll agree with it. It's hard because some of these accusations are true and sometimes they're evil, will accuse you of outright truth. And this is really important. So now we have to discern not the content of the accusation, but the tone. Guys, God's confrontation never lacks kindness, ever. The tone is never unkind. Evil's accusations are always harsh and pernicious. And there's a difference in accusation or condemnation of sin and conviction. How do you tell the difference? Tone of voice. Think about the woman at the well, right? She, Jesus literally lays out her sexual sin in front of her, and it's, it's super awkward. What does she do? She goes home, and she tells everybody what happened. And she's like, you got to see, you got to come meet this guy. Peter is rebuked all the time, like, get behind me, devil, right? What does Peter do? He lays down his life for Jesus, and he brings everyone to him. There is a kindness about Jesus' conviction of sin. He may say harsh words and he may be really hard, but his voice is always kind. Romans 2, kindness is what leads us to repentance. And it makes you want to bring people with you. And when you're convicted, you will always feel a sense of being lifted up by the Spirit, drawing you, embracing you, and lifting you up, and always a sense of hope for restoration. Condemnation leads you to a sense of being pushed down by the weight of sin and shame, and shame leads to hiding. And these agreements, they drive our behavior in, in close relationships. The devil wants you to believe the lie so you can make an agreement to live in that way that reinforces what you think is true, right? I don't open up to people because I'm always too much. I made an agreement with the father of lies. Now it's changing the way I relate and how I show my beauty. The devil is going to attack whatever it is as your greatest gifting. Judas was skilled with money. Maybe somewhere along the way, he said, you're always going to be, a, you, you, no one's ever going to take care of you. So then Jesus over here is like, I'm going to die. And he's like, what the heck? And the devil says, see, I told you, take care of yourself. And so he changes his actions to protect himself from feeling the shame and loneliness. That lie led to an agreement that he was in fact alone and reacted out of that lie. Colossians 1.22, are you still with me? Okay, tells us that Christ presents you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusations. That's who you are, and evil knows it. So its only hope is that you will agree with the accusation that he's giving you, so you will choose to live under the weight of that sin. The good news is 
Jesus has delegated his authority to us as children of his to fight evil on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of our friends. And he's gone before us and he's done a lot of the fighting, but it's our task to bring back that authority on earth like the early Christians did. So pay attention in your life and question the voices. Are you even being aware that you're being assaulted? I wasn't. These voices aren't creative. It's the same accusations that you're hearing over and over in your life. No one cares that I'm hurting. I am my own worst enemy. I'll never get over my addiction. If I need it done right, I'll have to do it myself. I'll do whatever it takes to be chosen. There is something wrong with me. How long have we been hearing them? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And there's specific ways that we can do that. They're not very fancy. We just follow what Jesus did and the disciples did. We use our words and our will. We need to verbally confront the spirits and will them to death. I know that sounds a little hokey, but I encourage you to read and listen up on that. It doesn't have to be fancy or laying of hands. It's like, you know, spirit of fear, this is what I'm feeling. I will you in the power of Jesus to get out of here. You have no place here. I'm willing you to death. I don't have time to go into all of it, but that's what I would really suggest that we keep going. And this is where Judas decided to stop fighting. And he allowed himself to be given over to this evil. We knew, he knew how to do it. He, he was with Jesus for three years, casting out demons, healing people. What a radical shift in his story it would have been if he would have kept fighting. And so we come to our second and final kind of takeaway from studying Judas and for Judas, Jesus isn't turning out to be who he thought he would be or do what he thought he would do. Isn't that true for us all the time? We may not verbally admit it or maybe not even know it, but I think deep down in our core, we think that following God should make our lives better. Conquer all of my enemies. Heal me from blank, blank, blank. Bring clarity to my life. And I think it plays out differently for each of us. A main one that I see in my life and some of my friends' lives um, is that we see God as kind of our great therapist. He's here to help us recover ourselves. Life's a treasure map. Jesus gives us some of the tools so we can go find our true selves. And we turn to Jesus, sure, to help us find our true selves, to heal us from whatever it is that we're battling, so that we feel better in our lives. We want others to respond to us when we're hurting in times with sympathy and empathy to help us figure things out so that we can have this life be the best it can. And the devil lies, your happiness is the most important thing. But then life doesn't work out and we're not healed from those things and we're mad at ourselves because we didn't do enough spiritual disciplines, right? Or make enough time for soul self-care. And we're mad at Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit that they didn't cooperate in helping us honor our self-focused agenda. Or maybe we're disappointed because God didn't give us the job or the spouse that we wanted in the time that we thought he would. We expected him to do it at a certain time and the devil lies, you are unlovable. You don't have what it takes for that job. And we believe him. So we take the next best thing because we must escape the feeling of being unlovable or unworthy or the fear of always being alone. And maybe God hasn't answered your questions. This is a big one. I've seen a lot of my friends. Or Emmy, 
You don't understand uh, why the Bible or scripture says a certain thing. You ask God to reveal it, to explain it to you, and he doesn't. God, can you tell me exactly what you mean about sexuality in the Bible? How many of us have asked that? Can you just lay it out for me so it's clear? Why, why did you allow this evil? Why did you allow my brother to die? And he does not answer. And so we start to believe over time and we get disappointed in the timing. And if you're not answering me, then you must not be trustworthy. You must not be who I said you were. And I stop following you because you're not giving me the peace of mind to live a life of clarity here on earth. Now, guys, these are legitimate good goals, right? We all want these things, but they're secondary to experiencing intimacy with God. Because when these two things are reversed, this is how we define the gospel. We use God's freedom he gave us on the cross as a way to help us love our life on this earth, not lose it. Our intimacy with God. Well, can you see the shift inward? It's really subtle. And it sounds good, but our greatest goal becomes self-discovery, self-care. But only intimacy with God will make us see our true beauty, help us know our truest value, and introduce ourselves to who we really are. And if intimacy, I mean, sorry, avoidance of a certain feeling is your first and, first and foremost goal, instead of yearning to know God in the scariest place of your life and waiting for him to transform the lie that you need X, Y, and Z in order to be okay, then you'll always settle for lesser things that won't not satisfy you. And maybe in the waiting, God wants to kill that lie once and for all so it is not part of your story anymore. And if needing answers, explanations, and knowledge is your highest goal, then you aren't seeking Jesus himself, just what he can provide for you. And he does not want us to settle. Like Judas, we're always going to be battling these darkness and, and, and light all of our life. We always, we desire to know the Trinity, to have intimacy with God, but we also really, really want our life to go well. Why wouldn't we? That's how we were designed in the first place. God wants that too, but he wants that secondary to us experiencing him. And it will always be low times, right? There's great and good times. But I think how we uh, seek the Lord and we're changed by the Trinity in the good times is a great litmus test at how, we, how we'll do when we're in the valleys. Larry Crabb has this quote that kills me every time. The forces of darkness value blessings. They call themselves life. They feel entitled to them and they are willing to do whatever it takes to get them. If they can't, the numbing pleasures, whatever it is, alcohol, porn, drugs, I added shopping for me, will do. And if that doesn't work, suicide seems reasonable. Would we be people who desire blessings but want God more at any cost to ourselves? This is what it looks like to mature in our faith. I'm always pissed off at the Lord. Just defeat evil and get it over with so we can be done here. But I can see now that he's trying to bring about the change in character in me to act like a daughter of God. We mature into people who do the same things and look like Jesus. And it gets harder as we follow Jesus. I mean, look at Peter and Paul and, and even Judas. It gets harder and harder. I love that Mary got this, right? She got this when she washed Jesus' feet. We long for Jesus' presence more, long to know God so when these dark nights of the soul come, and they will, these valley times, we can cling to him more than anything else. We hold tight while sitting in our despair and our disappointment. We feel the weight of the cross. And instead of running, 
to find something that makes us feel better, like Judas did, or escaping that feeling, we wait on the Spirit to draw us closer to the Father's heart. And sometimes that silence, guys, the valley, we always talk about this, or the times when Jesus doesn't answer you, is him ridding us of our desperate clinging to our blessings to make life work the way that we think we deserve for it to work. He's not ignoring you. He's not holding out on you. He sees the bigger picture. He sees the immune system. He knows what's going on, and he knows how it will end for you. And when we make really crappy choices, and we will, we won't sink into shame, which leads us to isolation and finding anything we can to grab onto so that we don't feel that shame anymore, which just leads to more poor choices and more shame. Instead, we sit in the pain and we wait for Christ. This is an active waiting. And I think this is what God wants us to do. It's an active waiting. It's a confessing. We don't have what it takes. I've tried all these other things. I'm going to sit in my disappointment and my despair or whatever. Anger, sure, he can take it. We say we've completely missed the point to, to be shaped like you. And that confession leads us, what, to repentance, right? And we keep going towards God. All the while, we use our God-given authority to identify devil's lies in our lives, and we rebuke them in our lives. And we find that it's better than we could have ever imagined. I tried to put words to it, but I couldn't. Because it's divine what God does in those moments. It's a mystery. Because it's only God can give it to us. See, Judas was so overcome by his own narrow agenda, and it isolated him from others. And it sent him to shame, and that's all he could see. And instead of turning to Jesus to ask him who he really was, he believed the lie that he was a shameful thief that could never be redeemed or restored, all because the disappointment that Jesus didn't cooperate with the plan that he had for the redemption of his people. He escaped that crippling burden of shame to the point of his own death. Would we instead be people who actively wait to experience him in the depths of our pain and joy? And he will show us himself. He may not make our lives better, but he will satisfy our greatest needs as we get to know him. So I'm going to have the band play. I put a few questions up here to think about. It's going to take a minute before we continue on in worship. And I know that was a lot. Thanks for bearing with me. What is it that we're looking for Jesus to do for us? What are we looking for when we come to Jesus? What lies are we hearing? Lies we've believed about who we are. Are we tuning into the battle? Are we grounding ourselves in truth daily? Thank you, Jesus, for Judas's story. Thank you that the writers of the gospel decided to choose truth over saving face to believe that you chose a guy like that. But we are like him all the time, and we don't want to be. We want to choose you. We want to choose intimacy with you over making our lives better. And we want to understand what you're doing in the spiritual realm, realm as, it, as it accounts to our life. Jesus, come and change us. Thank you, Lord. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.